Tonight is kind of an, an odd topic for me. Starting a meditation practice. What are the, the challenges? What does it mean to start a meditation practice? Um, and I think I'll begin by saying something I, I've often said in this Sangha. I believe that the the adults that are alive now, and I include myself in this, I think we're some of the most spoiled adults that have ever walked the, the face of the planet. You know, we, we all have the internet in our pocket and we just take that for granted. You know, it's not even a problem. We're all surrounded by apps that are always trying to figure out what we want. You know, we, you know, I think many for many of us, it's, you know, we have attitudes of, why should I ever eat a food that I don't like? Why should I ever listen to music I don't like? Why should I ever see a movie I don't like, you know? Um, and that too easily slips over into only wanting to experience the internal states that I want and not experiencing the internal states that I don't want, you know? And so I think, given our assumptions... There are, um, we live in a time in which I think people need meditation so much. I think, I think many people are craving for something and they don't realize that it's what meditation has to offer to them. And yet there, there are so many things about our culture that makes it inherently harder to approach meditation. So the first thing I'll say about starting a meditation practice, and this, this might not be true for anyone here, but there are some people who, for whom it's just, physiologically it's just hard to sit still. Um, and, and the first thing I want to say is, you know, even though, you know, this, this, the, what people think of when they think of meditation, they think of the Buddha sitting still. Um, there are many kinds of meditation. There are standing meditations, there are walking meditations, Really, if you combine silent breathing with something, you know, Tai Chi or yoga could be meditations, you know. And so there's there's many ways to get around it if there's some kind of physical thing where someone can't sit still. And it it's funny, something I often hear, you know, people find out that I, I meditate or I run a meditation sangha. And something I often hear is, oh, I tried meditation once. It didn't work for me. And, and I often, I get so curious about that. Like, what does that mean exactly? Um, and what kind, of, what kind of excuse is that, you know? Is it, you know, like the little kid, I tried broccoli once and I didn't like it kind of thing. Um, you know, I, I think that sometimes part of what's going on is that people's fundamental frame of mind is an uncomfortable place. And people are distracting themselves all the time from it. And then the first time they sit in meditation is the first time they're actually getting a taste of how uncomfortable their mind is. And they say, oh my God, I don't like that, you know. I think part of what happens also is sometimes people have this expectation that from the first time they sit in meditation, it's going to be nothing but like Buddha-like bliss, you know? Like meditation is supposed to be peaceful, so it should be instant bliss or something like that. And of course it's not. And, and that, you know, 
perhaps people think, well, if I didn't get police the first day, it didn't work for me. You know, I don't know. I think also people sometimes, when they start to get real with themselves, they start to sense where it might go and they start to sense the dangers of commitment, you know? And so I'll talk a little more about commitment in a minute. If we, if we start, start an actual daily practice, one of the things we confront immediately are the challenges of the monkey mind. The mind that just wants to keep on talking and talking and talking, jabber, jabber, jabber without stop. Um, and in many ways, I would say we live in a time in which we have an addiction to the monkey mind. You know, anyone who, anyone who is experiencing monkey mind chatter from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to sleep at night, that's an addiction, you know. And really, as with any addiction, the first step in breaking an addiction is, is admitting to ourselves, we have a problem here. We need to address this, you know. So I'll, I'll tell you some, a story about when I first started meditating, some of you have heard this story, but you know, I was exposed to meditation in college, got very excited about it, started reading about Gandhi, reading Eastern, you know, Hindu and Buddhist writings. And I was dabbling in meditation. I was kind of, you know, doing it some days, not doing it other days. And at one point I was talking about this with a mentor and the mentor said to me, and I'm, I'm very grateful that he said this to me, he said, Mike, you're going to get nothing out of this unless you do it every single day without fail. And so it's like, wow, okay. And for whatever reason, that that his words really landed for me powerfully. And it's like, okay, I'm going to do this every single day without fail. This is going to be great. I'm going to turn into Gandhi. Fantastic, you know. And so then I, I started meditating and that first week I had, looking back, I'd say I had kind of a honeymoon experience for about a week. I, you know, I experienced oceans of light, rivers of love, you know, bliss and joy and harmony. Then the week was over and I hadn't turned into Gandhi. And then the next six months or eight months, it was just this tug of war, you know, this, this, you know, chatter, 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 back to the breath. You could be getting more sleep back to the breath. You're wasting your time back to the breath. Why are you doing this back to the breath, you know? And just just this tug of war and sitting in that tug of war day after day after day. Um, I don't know why I had such dogged determination to stick it out. But I realized that over time, I was, as it were, building a muscle. I was building a, a focus muscle. And then at a certain point, I could start holding silence for a while. I had broken the grip of the monkey mind, you know. I could hold it for at least a little while, you know. And then, then there were carryover effects throughout my life all of a sudden, like all kinds of situations, you know, standing in line, sitting in traffic, you know, having some story that I'm, I'm unhappy and then realizing, oh, wait, I don't have to listen to this. I can be quiet instead. So breaking the monkey mind is 
the, the, the addiction to the monkey mind is really one of the first major challenges in meditation. Some of the deeper challenges have to do with commitment. And I talked about commitment last week. Um, commitment, of course, means every single day without fail, no exceptions. You know, every single day, even when it's inconvenient, even, even when it's hard, even when it's the last thing you want to do. Like, commitment, commitment means commitment, you know. And I think commitment to meditation is challenging for exactly the same reason that commitment to romantic relationships is challenging. Part of us knows when we commit, we're going to have to face ourselves. We're going to have to face the parts of ourselves that we don't want to face, you know. Because the truth is, insofar as there's parts of me that I'm not facing, over time that's going to exist, that's going to, um, exact a cost, a cost in my own life and a cost in the life of those around me. And certainly if I'm in a committed romantic relationship over the course of years and decades, eventually the stuff that I'm not facing is going to rub my partner the wrong way so that, you know, she's going to put it in my face and make me face it, you know, this kind of thing. Um, In meditation, it's more about just once, once we start getting quiet and developing our focus, then we start getting a really good look at ourselves, you know. And, and we start having the kinds of seeing, like once we see parts of ourselves, we can't unsee them anymore, you know. And so that, you know, that commitment can be scary up front. Um, you know, the mind can go into this this thing of, well, how I know I'll be able to face everything that I that I have to face, you know, this kind of thing. And part of embracing that commitment, and really I think this is also true of romantic commitment, but part of embracing that commitment to meditation is it's the distinction I've often called this small-minded courage versus large-hearted courage. Small-minded courage is essentially where I say, I think I know what my limits are. I'm going to risk myself up to what I think my limits are, you know. Whereas large-hearted courage is a deeper trust that comes out of the body. And it's this recognition that probably what I think my limits are aren't really my limits, you know. Probably I'm much stronger, much more powerful than I realize, and, and part of it is also an appreciation, kind of a Jungian appreciation of the compensatory nature of the psyche. In other words, if there is a deep pain in my psyche, there's also going to be the strength and the resilience to face that deep pain. You know, it's just, it's just the nature of the way that the psyche compensates for itself and balances itself naturally, you know. And so even though monkey mind might be saying, you know, I don't have what it takes to commit, you know, we really do. I'll say also, when I began my meditation, around the same time I also began mindfulness practice, which is something that dovetails very nicely with meditation. Mindfulness practice is just when we're pausing to look carefully 
at the world around us to 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 take in our sensory input and just be present to our sensory input. And a couple of years after I started meditating, I joined a group called Kaf, which I've talked about a little bit. Um, and Kaf, one of Kaf's big ideas was developing what they called the habit of inner silence. And so as I'm walking through the day, just develop, just taking odd in-between moments as an opportunity to develop silence, just returning to silence as a kind of touchstone throughout the day. And so that, that was very powerful for me because that meant, you know, I was exercising, quote unquote, that muscle, not just when I was sitting in meditation, but throughout the, throughout the day. And so I recommend those as, as practices that are very helpful in supporting a meditation practice. So having talked a little about all these difficulties that we can face, why would you want to meditate, you know? And the first thing I'll say is I think it's vastly underestimated how much pain, how much additional unnecessary pain is caused by the monkey mind. You know, we have whatever core pain we have, but then the monkey mind can multiply that 10 times, 100 times, by, by the doom scenarios it spins out, by the worries, the fears, everything, you know. It's funny because we can't really think ourselves into abiding happiness, but we can very easily think ourselves into sheer misery. You know, we can't think ourselves into heaven, but we very easily can think ourselves into hell, you know. And that, that says something profound about the monkey mind, when we really can silence the monkey mind, there's a subtle way that the whole body relaxes. It's like, wow, that additional pain source has been shut off, you know? And so that's a very powerful thing. I'll say also, one, one beautiful thing that happens in meditation is that it slows us down a little bit in the sense that you know, for someone who doesn't meditate, maybe they're reacting all the time. As soon as a button is pressed, then immediately I react. I, I say the main thing back. I strike back as soon as I'm triggered, you know. Um, meditation just slows everything down a little bit, you know. So the moment I'm triggered, I feel that I'm triggered. I notice that. And then there, it's, it might only be a split second, but it's a split second where I can choose. Do I want to say the hurtful thing that first came to mind? Do I want to be more diplomatic? You know, do I want to remain silent? You know, in other words, we can start to be more intentional rather than simply reacting to the world. And so that, that is a big advantage also. One of the, the kind of underappreciated advantages of meditation is that it builds our capacity. And I, as I've often said, I have a dear friend years ago, he said to me, the most important question in life is how big is your capacity? By capacity, I mean how big an emotional experience can you hold and still remain connected to your heart, still remain connected to your intentionality. 
you know. So when I go out in the world and I encounter an emotional energy for which I have the capacity, then I can witness that I can still remain connected to myself. I can still remain heart-centered. I can still live out whatever my chosen ideals are. You know, I can still be intentional. If I go out in the world and I encounter an an energy that is larger than my capacity, then I'm overwhelmed. Then ego shuts off. It basically starts going into fight-or-flight kind of mode. Typically, a lot of infantile defenses come out. I start saying things that I don't mean and acting on automatic pilot in ways, you know. So any anything about chosen ideals are just out the window at that point, you know. And so someone with a very small capacity would just be overwhelmed by the ordinary ups and downs of everyday life. They'd be in almost constant state of overwhelm. Someone with a more conventional capacity They've managed to, you know, they can weather the ordinary ups and downs of everyday life, but then out of the ordinary moments, overwhelm them. Well, we grow our capacity by by sitting with what is difficult, by leaning into our edge. You know, so say I encounter some kind of emotional pain. Maybe I can't hold all of it right now, but I can lean into the edge of it and feel into that. And just given the dynamics of the psyche, I start to acclimate to that. Then I can lean into a little more. Then I can lean into a little more. And over time, as I'm facing more and more of my own demons, I'm developing capacity. You know, it gets to the point I face so many of my own demons, there's almost nothing that the world can present to me that, that's gonna you know, knock me off my center, this kind of thing. And the, the final thing I'll talk about is what it means to have a relationship with inner silence. Um, one way to say it is, I think the deepest part of the human psyche, the deepest and most powerful part of the human psyche, is something I would call the hidden ground of love. And it is deeper and more powerful than our core pain. It's deeper and more powerful than our deepest passions. But it's silent. And we only access it through silence. You know? And I'll say also, when we can perceive just the external world with silence, um, when we perceive the world with mindfulness and with gratitude, you know, certainly... It, it's a wonderful place when we can also receive it with inner silence. Then it's almost like we begin to see the radiance of the world. Um, it, it almost, you know, the most ordinary circumstances look like a, a celestial angelic realm. It's hard to put into words. Um, really, all, all, all of the most beautiful mystical experiences unfold only when we have a relationship with inner silence. So in closing, I want to quote a passage from T.S. Eliot, which is on the quote sheet. So I'm going to share the quote sheet. I dropped the quote sheet in the chat there. 
And so this is from the four quartets. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor toward, at the still point there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement. And do not call it fixity where past and future are gathered, neither motion from nor toward, neither ascent nor decline. Except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. All I can say is there we have been, but I cannot say where, and I cannot say how long, for that is to place it in time. So before I go on, I'll say that is a a beautiful description of the experience of eternity. And the word eternity, I, I often say it's a word much misunderstood in our modern culture. Eternity doesn't mean time going on forever. Eternity is a different dimension from time. Whereas time is the realm of becoming, eternity is the realm of being. You know, and we gain access to eternity through silence in the present moment. So I'll continue. The inner freedom from the practical desire, the release from action and suffering, release from the inner and outer compulsion, yet surrounded by a grace of sense, a white light still and moving, erhebung without motion, concentration without elimination, both a new world and the old made explicit, understood in the completion of its partial ecstasy, the resolution of its partial horror. Yet the achievement of past and future woven in the weakness of the changing body protects mankind from heaven and damnation, which flesh cannot endure. Time past and time future allow but a little consciousness. To be conscious is not to be in time, but only in time can the moment in the rose garden the moment in the arbor where the rain beat, the moment in the, dra- the, moment in the drafty church at Smokefall be remembered, involved with past and future. Only through time, time is conquered. And I think one of the, the crucial lines there is just that line, to be conscious is not to be in time. That when we're really conscious, we start to occupy the eternal part of ourselves. So I'll continue with the quote sheet. And as as I'm reading these quotes, notice if there are particular quotes that really move you in some way. From the Tao Te Ching, Lao Tzu says, few things under heaven are as instructive as the lessons of silence. The great Zen master Hayakujo said, Your treasure house is in yourself. It contains all you'll ever need. Many years later, the Zen master Dogen said, if you can't find the truth right where you are, where else do you think you will find it? He also said that the self advances and confirms 10,000 things is delusion that the 10,000 things advance and confirm the self is called enlightenment. 
the Zen master Hakuin said, as for sitting in meditation, that is something which must include fits of ecstatic, blissful laughter, brains that will make you slump to the ground, clutching your belly, and even after that passes and you struggle to your feet, it will still make you fall anew into further contortions of side-splitting mirth. You know, meditation is about embracing all of us, and part of that is, is our laughter, part of us is our joy. Some, sometimes it's hard to open to, it's just as challenging to open to joy as it is to open to feel pain, you know. Krishnamurti said, the beauty of meditation is that you never know where you are, where you're going, what the end is. Parahamsa Yogananda said simply, learn to be calm and you always will be happy. Alan Watts said, waking up to who you are requires letting go of who you imagine yourself to be. The Christian mystic Thomas Merton said, Buddhist meditation, but above all that of Zen, seeks not to explain, but to pay attention, to become aware, to be mindful. In other words, to develop a certain kind of consciousness that is above and beyond deception by verbal formulations or by emotional excitement. And of course, two interesting challenges in that quote. How are we deceived by verbal formulations? And how are we deceived by emotional excitement, you know? The poet Gary Snyder said, in this world of onrushing events, the act of meditation, even just a one breath meditation, straightening the back, clearing the mind for a moment, is a refreshing island in the stream. Meditation is not just a rest or a retreat from the turmoil of the stream of impurity of the world. It is a way of being the stream, so one can be at home both in the white waters and the eddies. Meditation may take one out of the world, but it also puts one totally into it. Jim Rohn said, if you're not willing to risk the unusual, you will have to settle for the ordinary. Very simple and very deep. Sri Chinmoy said, I meditate so that my mind cannot complicate my life. Roy Eugene Davis said, A most useful approach to meditation is to consider it the most important activity of each day. Schedule it as you would an extremely important appointment and unfailingly keep your appointment with the infinite. The Dalai Lama says, If one's life is simple, contentment has to come. Simplicity is extremely important for happiness. Having few desires, feeling satisfied with what you have is very vital. Satisfaction with just enough food, clothing, and shelter to protect you from the elements. And finally, there is an intense delight in abandoning faulty states of mind and in cultivating helpful ones in meditation. The Buddhist teacher Sylvia Borstein says, Mindful meditation doesn't change life. Life remains as fragile and unpredictable as ever. Meditation changes the heart's capacity to accept life as it is. Trying Trumba said, the practice of meditation does not involve discontinuing one's relationship with oneself and looking for a better person or searching for a possibility of reforming oneself and becoming a better person. The practice of meditation is a way of continuing one's confusion, chaos, aggression, and passion 
but working with it, seeing it from an enlightened point of view. And Pema Chodron, who studied with Choi and Trumpa, said, Fear is a natural reaction of moving closer to the truth. John Kabat-Zinn said, It is indeed a radical act of love just to sit down and be quiet for a time by yourself. Joseph Goldstein said, The wonderful paradox about the truth of suffering is that the more we open to it and understand it, the lighter and freer our mind becomes. Our mind becomes more spacious, more open and happier as we move past our avoidance and denial to see what is true. We become less driven by compulsive desires and addictions because we see clearly the nature of things as they are. Jack Cornfield said, there's a sign outside a casino in Las Vegas that says, you must be present to win. The same is true in meditation. If we want to see the nature of our lives, we must actually be present, awake, aware. The movie maker David Lynch said, the thing about meditation is you become more and more you. Eckhart Tolle said, wisdom comes with the ability to be still. Just look and listen. No more is needed. Rabbi Michael Strassfeld said, it is in the ordinary rather than the extraordinary that we should seek holiness and meaning. Ajahn Brahm says, meditation is like a gym in which you develop the powerful mental muscles of calmness and insight. Sharon Salzberg said, we can learn the art of fierce compassion, redefining strength, deconstructing isolation, and renewing a sense of community. Practice letting go of rigid us versus them thinking while cultivating power and clarity in response to difficult situations. Tara Brock said, we can decide to love life. We can consciously intend to love without holding back. Although we will continue to shut down, we can always start with exactly what is present and bring kindness to our resistance. We can say yes to our no. And as we intentionally deepen our yes, we discover an unconditional acceptance, an open allowing acceptance that frees us. We're not dependent on life being a certain way. The openness of our presence itself gives rise to deep contentment. She also said, I take refuge in awareness. I take refuge in truth. I take refuge in love. That in many ways is her reformulation of the, the very traditional formula. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. But it really... I think by reframing it, she, she makes it in some ways much more accessible and basic even. Awareness, truth, and love, we always have access to those, you know. David White, the poet, said, I want to know if you are willing to live day by day with the consequence of love. Sadhguru said, meditation means dissolving the invisible walls that unaware we have built. Adi Ashanti said, 
Meditation is not a technique to master. It is the highest form of prayer, a naked act of love, and an effortless surrender into the silent abyss beyond knowing. <coughs> Jeff Shore said, Beginners in meditation can often feel frustrated because they get distracted easily and meditation doesn't feel like they imagined it should. But thinking your meditation is going wrong because you have distracting thoughts is like thinking your workout is going wrong because you sweat. Young Yi Mingyur said, No matter how long you practice or what method you use, every technique of Buddhist meditation ultimately generates compassion. When you recognize your suffering, you spontaneously see that it's the same as that within others. You want to be happy, you don't want to suffer, and you see that this is the same with others. You see everyone is like a big family, sharing one feeling. When you see this suffering is also in others, you don't feel so bad about yourself. Your mind becomes big. You are not here alone, you realize, so that gives you courage. He also said, if we could see the whole truth of any situation, our only response would be one of compassion. And that's true both of interpersonal and social situations. It's also true of any internal situation, any, any internal complex. If we could really see the whole truth of it, our only response would be one of compassion. The yoga teacher Tara Stiles said, with meditation you become a sensitized superhero, completely in control, with endless possibilities at your fingertips. And Dan Harris said, meditation is not about feeling a certain way, it's about feeling the way you feel. <clears throat> 